Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, you taught through the COVID-19 pandemic. You had a you had more time than most people left in the school year. How'd it go? Oh, I want to say it was the best of times or the worst of times, um, but it wasn't the best of times by any means. It was. I think Mike, Michael Barber, who came on our program, said that we're pretty much providing triage for the rest of the year. And that is right. really what it felt like. My teams uh, worked hard. We created individual, like we had a 90-minute lesson responsible for a week that like all freshmen and all juniors, I did freshmen and juniors, got. Um, and so my teams worked really hard to you know do the best we could. And um, it was tough. And your your teams are like your colleagues in your department. Yeah, yeah, my colleagues, in my department. I had uh, there were three of us for world history, and then four members of my department are working on the U.S. Uh, the freshman curriculum. Even though I feel relatively prepared to know what to do online, having the transition happen so quickly, it just catches you off guard. And I mean, to plan a good online course really takes time. Yeah, you know, you really need time. So doing it really quickly is just like draining, I oh feel my like. Goodness. And my school ended in, in you know early May, and then I taught a three-week May course that I had to put online. And now I'm teaching a, a five-week June course, and oh, wow. I'm ready for a break, Michael. My students have been amazing, and we've had really good experiences, but it's not easy, and it's very different. Like, I would love to just see them and show up face-to-face. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wrote, like, introductions to the lessons, and after I gave feedback on everything, I wrote like a, a wrapping up thing uh, each week. And I was always like, oh, I miss you people. <laughs> and I really did. I just wanted to. Also, yeah. it's so much easier to see people and to like talk yeah. about this stuff rather than, I don't know. It was tough. It was tough. We just got the guidance for next year-ish. It looks like we're planning for three different scenarios, all in hybrid or all remote. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that we'll start off with everyone there with social distancing, if you can actually do that, because my room is very, very tiny. Um, but I don't, I really have no idea what the future is going to bring. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us feel that way. I think both of us like to use digital tools, right? Sure, yeah. I think we both like to use, we have video conferencing and we obviously use social media and and I'm sure you use tools. I use things like Flipgrid and Padlet and a lot of the stuff that other people are using and find them to be useful in different ways. But I don't focus as much on like the sites that are designed to be used, right? The apps that are, are subject specific. And I think I could do a little bit more of that. Oh, very true. Fall. Yeah. But I think I need some help with that. If so only. maybe we need some people who've been doing stuff online and preparing stuff online. Wait, do we have people? Now. Would that... We do. We do. 
So we would like to welcome to the podcast, Drs. Eileen and Michael Burson. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great Thank to you. be here. Thank you, Michael and Dan. It's nice to be here. We now have two Michaels, double Michael. So can you each tell us a little bit about your backgrounds in education? Sure. I'm a uh, professor of social science education at the University of South Florida, and I've been doing a lot of work over a number of years in the area of uh, the use of emerging technologies in the social studies. And I never quite thought that I would see a day when we would be fully online like this. And I'll share with you an interesting story in my background. Um, it was back in like 1999, we were doing some initial work in something called Internet 2. And it was supposed to be a high speed internet connection that would allow you to send huge packets of information and data. And we'd started doing some experimentation at USF with the University of Virginia on teaching two classes, two elementary social studies classes, one at UVA and one at USF using Internet 2. And this is back in 1999. It took us almost two hours to set up the connection between the two classes. <laughs> and we had a whole team of working with video cameras, uh, high speed computers, and the students were patient. And then the video ended up looking like a, a horror picture because you would see this morphing image going across the screen. But we, the students would walk up to the screen with the students at UVA and they would talk to them. And that was one of my first attempts to connect online in a uh, digital space. And then to think, and you know, here we are in 2020 and with a push of a button, you can get online so easily and so quickly. So Michael and I come from sort of diverse disciplinary backgrounds. So I'm Eileen Burson, and I'm also a professor at the University of South Florida, but I'm in the early childhood field. And my background is being trained in child development and psychology. So as Michael's talking about back in the 90s, when he was getting really sort of excited about this whole internet thing and like, how could we get this into all the schools? This is so cool. And we need to have every school that's wired and have these opportunities to access information this sort of way. I was actually working in a different arena. So it was working with children who were suspected victims of abuse and maltreatment. And one of the first known cases in the United States of an adolescent who had been groomed online for cyber victimization had come into our center to be evaluated and for us to assess. So it, it grew, our collaboration actually grew out of one of those dinnertime you know, conversations where Michael, who's really excited about all of the potential and the excitement of this thing, and then for me, dealing with probably one of the most difficult cases that I had dealt with up to that point in time in my professional career. And I was like, I don't know, I'm really concerned. I'm really worried. You know, there seems like this could be really go bad um, for our kids if we don't really understand what it is we're entering them into in these digital spaces. And so it took us in this sort of initial space that we began having these conversations and we started off doing things sort of at that time that was framed around cyber safety. We wanted them to have access to this wonderful sort of digital environment and space, but how can we do it in safe ways? 
But over the years, sort of our thinking began to morph out of that sort of protectionist cocoon to really be more around sort of that cyber citizenship, cyber engagement, really recognizing the agency and capacity of young people to really be able to make good choices, good decisions, if they're given the right tools and the opportunities. And it really morphed into this thinking around digital literacies. Children have the capacity. We have to incorporate across the curriculum ways in which they can discern information that they see. And I remember one of our first situations when we were first starting to talk about internet safety back in the 90s, you know, we talked about this concept of strangers out there, and yet the world is interconnected with people getting online for the first time, like Michael, we've never met before, and here we are having a conversation today online, but some of our initial discussions revolved around that that conceptual about you know, you really don't talk to strangers, or how do you, to this day and age where we're talking more about cyber literacies. And that's still such an important issue. I'm really glad you all did that work. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to is the Reset podcast, and it focuses on kind of intersections of technology and society. And they had an episode 94 recently focused on how Congress is trying to end child abuse online and talked about the Earn It Act, which there's a lot of debate happening about that act and privacy online. And and certainly in the last few years, there's kind of been a kickback where I think all the tech companies were kind of, you know, glorified. And now people are really starting to look at issues like cybersecurity, privacy, disinformation in more critical ways. And my journey was like that did not focus on issues of privacy. In fact, I remember when I was first studying social media at Wichita State, I was very annoyed with the local school district because they were often blocking Google for privacy concerns. Of course, now people like Shoshana Zuboff have come out with books about surveillance capitalism and how Google uses all our data and traffics in it. And that's kind of their whole business model. And so recently, me and some of my doc students just wrote a paper about some of the problems with Google. So I've gone full circle in this. And so it's interesting to think about over time how we address some of these things. Our awareness about what are the risks has certainly evolved. Like, you know, as Michael said, the initial risk really was around that sort of stranger danger stuff, like somebody was going to reach through a screen and grab children. And of course, it was much more nuanced than that about sort of the the risk and understanding about who people are and the veracity of information that they're exposed to. But even more so, as you said, you know, sort of this conceptualization about what is privacy. And even for young people growing up today, their ideas and concerns about privacy are really quite distinct than many of us from, you know, another day and age and the way we think about our information. Right. Yeah. And and just even in the issue of the day of, you know, dealing with COVID right now, and we're talking about tracking patients and getting phone calls and there are scams that are currently taking place right now where they're trying to capitalize on our fears associated with COVID by contacting you via Twitter via you know variety of different sources or um, over the phone and how do we discern accurate information is becoming even more essential in this age. Where in the curriculum do we really address right these kinds of areas of preparation for our students? And for a long time it was like people really haven't been thinking about it until like the secondary, sometimes in the middle school years. But they thought like, you know, in those earlier years that that was way too young that, you know, for kids to be worried about this. But now that we know that we've got, you know, sort of ever since we had that pass back effect where, you know, 
parents would sit there and pass back their digital devices to the kids in the back seat to keep them quiet as they're driving. So, you know, you have even in the toddler years or infancy, you're sort of already becoming very skilled at using, you know, sort of the very easy mobile devices that we have with us all the time. And so we recognize that we're really sort of behind the curve here in the U.S. in comparison to our colleagues all around the world who are actually starting in the preschool years um, about addressing these issues around cybersecurity and preparing children for their digital lives. Um, whereas we sort of have negated that within our curriculum traditionally within the United States. My daughter recently, uh, we were having a FaceTime conversation with her cousin. She sent a text message to a group text that I was editing and I was not ready to do that. She's not three. I should not have given her my phone. <laughs> and, uh, like, it, it was fun, but I was edit, I, was, I wanted to edit my response before I it, it sent it. Um, I think she didn't go and purchase like a multi-million dollar boat off of eBay or something like that, right? Oh my right? goodness. But I, I would be on the hook for that probably. Right. <laughs> what advice do you have in that area for people who are concerned with um, cyber safety issues since you all have so much experience in it? Well, one of the, one of the most critical things to do right now is really take time and effort to, to, uh, make sure that your systems are as locked down as possible. And by that, I mean, not necessarily physically locked down where you're not getting information, but know your information sources. Uh, you know, it, we can take a somewhat cavalier attitude toward checking out this or checking out that or something looks really interesting that's coming in. But right now is the time really to, to have a, a sense, this, a sense of control over your digital self. What, what you see coming in, um, knowing when to delete, making those personal decisions about doing that, and, and asking people questions if you're not sure about your digital connections that you're making, asking for help and asking questions, because it is getting so sophisticated out there. Phishing expeditions that are taking place, um, especially associated in times of crisis, can really, can really trick us into making bad decisions. And because I work more with younger children and their families, one of those critical areas that has happened is for, you know, their caregivers to really reflect on their sharing team practices, you know, that all those things that they share online about their kids. So, I mean, even before children are born, they have a digital dossier, right? That, you know, mom's pregnant and, oh, we can't wait. And then the announcement of the day that they're born and the, the whole naming sort of thing that they've come up with, the celebration of their first birthday. So all of these things are documented. And those little breadcrumbs that are left about their digital identities are really sort of valuable to people who traffic in that kind of information. So much so that they found that among the most vulnerable groups to have identities stolen are actually young children. Because it's not until they are getting ready to go to college and then finally apply to get a credit card that they find that someone's been using their identity for those last 18 years. And now they have bad credit ratings. I mean, you know, that sort of started when they were two years old because all it took was somebody to go online and figure out what their birthday was, their name, and enough, you know, information about their hometown that they could get from those breadcrumbs and then open accounts in their name. Michael, are you thinking about your own Sharon team practices right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Because I just talked about how 
my daughter, I will not name again, sent a, a group message. <laughs> now I don't know how that's going to be used in the future. <laughs> I do recommend uh, Leah Plunkett's book if you have a, if you're interested in this topic because she does a it's a it's a lawyer's perspective. So she does a lot of hypotheticals, but by the end of the book, she really gave me a different way of thinking about you know, the ways that parents and caregivers and teachers, I think there's a lot of lessons for educators. What do we share about students online? Uh, everyone went to remote learning. A lot of people started sharing screenshots with all their students' pictures and things like that. And I think we just need to think hard about like, why are we doing that? Who are we doing it for? What purpose does it serve? I'm not a parent, but I can't imagine because there's such a want to share things about your children, but that can go really wrong too. So it's, a, it's, it's some good advice. Well, before we uh, go any further, you're in the same place, correct? Like, you're... How do I say this? Uh, same university, is that what you're saying? Yeah, you're at this... No, no, but you're, you're, you're married? Yes, 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 we are. <laughs> That's what I was trying to figure out. I knew that you had the same last names and that you were um, uh, working at the same place. I didn't realize that you were also... I mean, it makes a lot more sense than... The second. <laughs> I apologize. Dan's supposed to uh, tell me these things beforehand, just so I can get a bit of a lay of the land uh, for everyone listening. Uh, it's more, it's more interesting to see it unfold that way. No, actually, that's brilliant. There is other... We're quarantined together, but right. we don't know each other Because <laughs> right. no. they they did it alphabetically, so the university right. put. There was a, there was a time when you, when you work in a university, and whenever you get grant funding. Um, they're very particular about, you know, sort of disclosures, you know, that there could be any just appearance of sort of inappropriate sort of relationships or things like that. So we, there was one point at which we received a grant and they said to us, well, you need to contact the, the grant funders and disclose to them that you're a married couple. And we said, okay, well, we're, we're not like hiding it, right? You know, we're just <laughs> but, but I did like the way it unfolded. Yeah. So. <laughs> So you are here to talk about an app called Kids Citizen. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about that? So one of the um, you know areas that we've been looking at over the past few years is really developing the sense of, of digital literacy, uh, digital understandings. And since students and children are so bombarded with the visual, um, we started exploring and have been very interested in uh, the work of the Library of Congress in the Teaching with Primary Sources program. But we noticed that in our own teaching, and Eileen teaches our early childhood social studies methods, and I teach elementary social studies methods, we noticed that there wasn't really a lot out there that allowed our students to work with young, young children around the use of primary sources. So about five years ago, the Library of Congress introduced a new grant program that was called Congress Civic Participation and Primary Sources Project. And it specifically focused on the development of technological interactives to utilize the resources of the Library of Congress to teach young children as well as older children how to interact with these primary sources. The Library of Congress put out an open call just looking for proposals on de developing these kind of interactives to draw off of the resources that they have there and provide sort of really innovative, creative ways to get these more in the hands of students, like Michael said, across, you know, sort of the grade level spectrum. The vast majority of those proposals that came in um, as 
would be might be expected were really focused on the secondary, maybe middle school audiences, um, because that's really a lot where you see that kind of work happening. But we had already been engaged in um, exploring and doing research in schools with uh, preschoolers, kindergartners, first graders um, about developing their capacity to engage in historical inquiry using primary sources, historical primary sources, um, as sort of these impetus of inciting their questions and their creativity and their wonderings. And we found that they really resonated well. In fact, they were excited and very engaged with that form of learning. So then it was a, an issue about thinking about migrating that into a digital format in the, in the context of the app. So when the library came out with this proposal, we, along with our colleague, Bert Snow, who at that point in time had been at Muzzy Lane, um, had developed a proposal to um, develop what's now called Kid Citizen, which is a, a freely accessible interactive that's available and you can utilize it on any form or device to really introduce children to historical thinking and civic engagement, drawing off of the resources from the Library of Congress. So I started to look at one today. It was one on Rosa Parks. Uh, when I was putting Boy Child to uh, sleep, I won't say his name because I don't want to have to steal. And uh, I did look a little bit at the Rosa Parks one. Do you mind talking a little bit about how, like the framework and how it would how one of these would, would work? Sure. So, so there's several different episodes. Um, each one is designed to sort of be either what we call either a bite size or sort of a meal. But, but the bite size ones last like maybe about five minutes. Um, the meals are more like 15 minutes or to 17 minutes, you know, kind of fitting within both the attention span as well as sort of the allocated amount of time typically that elementary school teachers might have to sort of engage in that kind of learning experience. And they each introduce children to sort of a primary source of interest with an essential question that they're going to be exploring as they go through um, this interactive. And they collect clues along the way and they have to then come up with sort of what their own conclusions are based on the historical evidence that they collect. As they go into the episode though, they have this sort of older mentor character, her name is Ella, who is sort of their guide through the episode. And she's intentionally designed to be a little bit older than our users. She has a bit of a sassy attitude about her. So she um, sort of questions them and reacts and responds to things. It's not a yes, no, you're right or you're not right. It's really like, so, to, you know, kind of think about that, reflect on that. Let's go back and look, look at that again so that you can think about or change maybe your ideas as you're going along. Yeah, and our real, our real impetus is to develop within children this, this curiosity to answer a question. So in all of the episodes, you'll not find um, points or stars or incentives like that. We're really trying to develop this more intrinsic interest in discovering the story. So in the Rosa Parks example, discovering about her relationship with her mother through a card, a powerful Mother's Day card that she sent her, as opposed to the chime, well, you got five points for this. And we were really intentional. We did a lot of research on 
game design. And this is, we wouldn't really call this a game. It's more of what's called a digital interactive, but we did a lot of research on game design. And we, um, based on the research finding, we said, we're not going to include uh, points. We're really gonna focus on developing children's intrinsic curiosity and help them to learn how to make decisions based on collecting evidence. So that's something that runs through all of the different episodes. What are some of the biggest challenges in putting something like this together? I'd love to learn about the process because I think as educators, we don't often know how to move towards this. Of course, getting a big grant is helpful, but but what did you learn from this process? Like you said, once you get the grant, there's like, hooray, we got it. And then it's like, oh no, we have to do this work now. So it's, and that's sort of always the challenge of trying to figure it out. So the process of designing each of these episodes has a lot of behind the scenes complexity involved. And one of the things that, you know, as Michael said, for a very long time, we've been working with our pre-service teachers, we've been in schools in, in working with young children and utilizing primary sources. But what this required us to do was to take what we sort of intuitively do in our own minds when we teach, whether at the university level or in classrooms with children, and somehow embed that in the underlying pedagogy of the game. And that's not always easy to do because you have limitations, right? And what you, you can't just, you know, of course we had money to help support this, but it's not like a budget like that big giant game designers have to be able to put in there. So we are working together and trying to sort of storyboard it and then realize that, oh wait, you know, we sort of took a huge leap to get children from point A to point B. So we've got to then go back and so to reflect how do we create those intervening steps without adding too much time into the game or too much complexity and how do we add in sort of scaffolding to make sure that they are understanding what's occurring and then we test it out with children and we test it out with teachers and all of those things so each one of these um, takes a lot of time energy and effort that goes into what ends up being basically a 15-minute playthrough. Right. right. And, and really one of the most interesting things that that occurred as we were going through this is we went into some schools to do some pilot testing. And, you know, we're working at home with, um, you know, pretty fast Internet connection. So we had to look at the um, the digital tools that would allow the students to play this. So whether it was on a computer that was seven or eight or nine years old, could this could this digital interactive play on in those scenarios? And that was something that challenged us too in the design components. And and also too, you know, these are uh, five-year-olds in some cases that are playing this interactive. Although we we try to get teachers to use this first as a whole class introduction, and then children can do it on their own. But but in, inevitably, in some places, teachers would have this up, and students would start playing this on their own. Right, because the pedagogy behind it really is that it's in the within the conversation space that children really grow and develop their inquiry-based skills, not in an isolated sort of one-on-one and working on this solo on a computer. So that's why we really like when when teachers either introduce it initially through whole class or small group 
sort of in, instruction and then either students can work um, in dyads or if they have interest they could go through it individually sort of as a re you know sort of reinforcement to revisit the episodes and, and one of the exciting components that's coming soon is we have um, we've been working with our colleagues at the University of Puerto Rico to um, develop uh, all of these at all of these initial episodes in a Spanish version as well that's great I'm I do have a question on how, like, when you are creating one of these episodes, do you start off with the primary document that you want to use, or do you have more of a topic and then look for the primary document? Like, what is your starting point? So most often, well, I think we initially had a lot of brainstorming about sort of what are topics of inquiry that really resonate with the curriculum within those early years, where we felt like, teachers could be able to see the authentic connections to what they might already be doing in the classroom. So many of the uh, initial episodes were sort of driven by that sort of concept of, well, we know that, in, again, working with our increased service teachers and in working within the context of schools, that these are topics that sort of come up and are revisited over and over again as they're engaged in lesson planning and, and thinking about how they're gonna teach different issues. Other ones were really because we, um, so our, our newest episodes, so for example, like you mentioned, like the Rosa Parks episode, we're doing sort of um, dual duty for us. So one was because we had um, come across some really interesting primary sources, but really the first step in that was that we wanted to focus in on certain kinds of historical literacies. Um, historical inquiry literacies for the students. So for example, with Rosa Parks, this really, that episode was really about analysis um, and kind of going through and making sense of information, this greeting card. Um, we have another one that'll be coming out very soon. That's uh, what we call our wondering episode, but it's on interpreting information that you find in a map. Um, but it's a map that is developmentally accessible for younger learners. And then we're going to have another one that's really focused on the historical increase skill of doing close observation. And that'll be a looking um, at a family um, that was interned, um, a Japanese American family that was interned. So sometimes it's um, the topic um, sort of came first and other times it was the primary source um, that we came across. So it just depends on the episode. Just thinking of so many great picture books to accompany these lessons for kids that could be really powerful. So I'm already starting to envision a pedagogy around this that could be really, really good. So thanks for creating this resource for everyone. It, it seems really useful. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. What's really nice too is that it's freely accessible. And it will always be freely accessible. So, you know, students down the road can utilize it. We're constantly making um, adjustments. We also have a um, the template behind this, the technological template behind this is open to what we would call technologically ambitious teachers. Uh, it's not the easiest template to work with, but we have something called the Kids Citizen Editor. And it's a the tool, it's the behind the scenes platform that would allow you, Dan or Michael, to take a regionally specific or a primary source that's a, a developmentally of interest to you, place it in the system, create your own episode, 
you could create your own character, you could create your own narrative associated with it. The, the, but again, we use the term technologically ambitious. So it would right. be a teacher who would be interested in, in working kind of behind the scenes to create their own episode. And so whereas we have the Ella mentor character, what teachers in a classroom can do is they can upload the voices, even the images of their own students. And that's not something that goes onto our shared platform. So this is would be sort of like having a class ebook that they may do. They could now create this digital interactive or Michael, you could do it at home with your own kids and they could have them, they could be featured inside this sort of interactive exploring, you know, sort of primary sources that you all were interested in. If there's any possible way that I'm able to sleep in the next like month or two, like this is something that I would definitely love to. It's so cool. Michael's eyes during that explanation that he could do it too were very wide. <laughs> and, Seriously, and, like, and he was grinning. Oh, I wish. <laughs> On the Kid Citizen platform, there will be sort of how-to um, yeah. videos that will be um, posted in the next um, several months to help guide, as, as Michael described, the, those sort of ambitious teachers um, who are interested in sort of evolving their own interactives. I love it. So other than making sure that or you you would suggest doing uh, a full class and then going down to dyads or pairs what other suggestions do you have for teachers trying to uh, utilize kids citizen in their classroom so with each one of the episodes we have created teachers guides and there's um in for the teachers guides just like the episodes are free for teachers to access and download and with those, we provide um, background information for the teacher because we don't expect necessarily that elementary teachers have the historical context behind the primary sources that are being featured in each of these episodes. So it provides them with some additional background information. It gives the direct links to every primary source that's featured in the interactive. So if they wanted to, they could have hard copies that be, could be used in their classrooms to help for differentiation. Um, or while they're doing whole group instruction, the children could also be kind of following along, looking at sort of their own hard copies of the, of the uh, images that are being featured in the episode. And then we also pair it with lots of children's literature that provide additional sort of content knowledge for the children um, to help develop their background understanding around the concepts and the issues that are being explored in each of the episodes, along with some instructional suggestions about the ways to embed it into the curriculum, um, looking across the interdisciplinary areas, because elementary is, is oftentimes an interdisciplinary way of teaching. And so we make connections within science and math and literacy, as well as within the social studies um, for the teachers. So we provide that within the teacher's guides to help give them sort of, again, points to which they can jump off or connect to within the context of the curriculum. That's awesome. Thank you so much, because when I'm working with our elementary social studies candidates, I'm pitching, making the social studies pitch that you need to teach us. And then I'm like, it could also be interdisciplinary. And then they're like, oh, maybe we could really teach it then. <laughs> um, so most people know finding time for social studies with all the testing pressures is a challenge. And so interdisciplinary work, can, it really helps teachers. So I appreciate that note too. Well, this is great. And I really appreciate you all sharing all your work with this and all the hard work that's gone into it. Thank you. 
Thank you, doctors Irene and Michael Burson, for chatting with us today. Thank you. It's great to be with both of you today. It's our pleasure. Where can our listeners find you and your work online besides kidcitizen.net? So, well, both Michael and I are at the University of South Florida in the College of Education. And so most of our work ends up getting uh, posted there. If you um, just sort of look at either one of the Bursons um, at University of South Florida, you'll come across one of us. And that's really where you can keep up with most of our work. Great. Well, we really enjoyed the, the discussion and we certainly look forward to checking out the website and learning more about your other articles and work that you have on your website. Thank you. Thank you. It's been nice spending the evening with you chatting. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education or you just want to chat, we're back on Twitter at Visions of Ed. We're also, of course, on Facebook and in, I guess, the Pinterest thing, but we really don't check there, so I don't know why you would go there. But if you haven't already, and really, hit us up. Subscribe to Visions of Education podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, really anywhere you'd like us to be. We're probably there, and if not, let us know in the comments. We'll fix it. And did Michael mention our Twitter accounts back up? He did, but I'm saying it again. We put a new Twitter account up. Go follow us there. We have way fewer followers than we did before, but we need it. We also need five-star reviews because that helps people find this podcast. So we appreciate that. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.